Uh, so thank you so much for having me. It's um, uh, lovely to be here um, reflecting on the history of UASIS and um, fabulous to be here in such a, a, a great um, site to be doing that, that reflection. And I, I thought it was just amazing yesterday to be in the archives and to think partly on the theme of, 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 of archives and where the EU is going in the future. I like that, that concept of where we've been and where we're going. And it made me reflect on some of the work that um, we've been developing on the European Union and what it actually means for archiving. Um, one of the um, parts that a number of us have been involved in in the UK, uh, Joe and Helens, well, several of us, Roberta, uh, has been the UK and the EU in a Changing Europe project. And one of the things that that's been very, very involved in is keeping everybody informed on what's going on in Brexit. It's been a lot to do with public engagement, but it's also been really quite innovative in its ways of approaching the, the Brexit issue. And one of the things that we've been working on in, in, in our project is looking at how we can begin to use slightly different methods from our traditional political science methods to understand these developments in the European Union and particularly the developments that we've seen around the concept of fact perception, um, how we understand the information that we've been getting, how we process the information that we've been getting, how we decide whether or not to endow trust or authority in that inf information. And one of the things we've been looking at is um, how we can get a sense of people's emotions about the European Union and how that affects their processing of the information that they're given. Because we know that all through this debate, and we'll all have been in these conversations and we've seen them in the public, there's this constant question, we need more expert advice, we need more expert advice, we need more details. But actually, if you handed over the details, it was like, oh, those experts are just trying to make us do whatever they want to do. And there was this real scepticism about experts. And I, I often likened it to um, being going to a mortgage advisor. And you know, you go there and they give you all these bits of information and they go, but you know, I really can't advise you on what's the best thing for you. And you're like, I was only here for you to tell me what I need to do. And I think it was a bit like that on Brexit. People felt a bit lost. But if they got information that didn't fit with their current frames, then they were uncomfortable with it and they didn't really take it in and, and process it. And one of the things that, that really made me think about um, when we were talking yesterday was um, Piers mentioned the dialogue of the deaf. And I think that's very much what we've been seeing and what we're trying to look at, using things, tools from cognitive neuroscience and from political psychology to try and get a sense of how people are communicating and processing information. But that also brings up questions about one of the other points that, that Piers raised about um, the, the digitisation of information and the moving into digital platforms. Um, Roberta, uh, I know, has had a look on the, the, the sites and a lot of the previous information in the communications campaigns has already been deleted. Um, so it's not just these emails that have now gone. We now have this very transitory and fast-moving um, form of communication that's really, really hard to track. And on the one hand, I could see that in that conversation that may be a loss to us as academics, um, but there may be temporary gains as well. And I wondered if there's ways in which what we lose on, on the swings we gain in part on the roundabouts, because one of the areas we've been looking at, and I know Simon's been looking at as well, is, is Twitter conversations. 
And there, the advantage that we have is that we get to gain, I and mean, we've now gathered nearly 60 million tweets on the referendum campaign. Now, once you get into that scale, you have stories and patterns that you can observe over a sort of longitudinal scale that give you some insights into shifts in conversations, even when they're not representative um, conversations. But the other thing that I think you get from that is that we move away from elite top-down domination of archival research and that's quite interesting because one of the things that we know about is that traditionally it has been in the National Archives, it's been quite difficult to get into common conversation, to get them stored if you can't get access to um, 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 records beyond that. And one of the things that we find in the Twitter conversation is that it allows for spontaneous bottom-up conversation. So again, it's not representative, but it gives you another angle on the stories. It is archivable, you can um, um, keep it. Um, you can also then share it with other researchers so that they can begin to, to use that as well. So that, I just thought, was quite an interesting reflection on how archives and archival work might change and, and move as we go on. But we're about to come out of, I think, a sweet spot on that as well, as all the young people move off of things like Twitter and move on to Snapchat, which disappears immediately. So all big parts of these conversations that we've suddenly had a moment that we could catch um, from the politically motivated or the political active on an issue are also likely to disappear. And that's a big challenge to, to um, computer scientists and information scholars who are, who are trying to, to capture that. So what else can we see happening, I guess, in the study of the future of, of the Brexit campaign and the, the, the relationship of individuals with the European Union? Um, and I think we are seeing, and <coughs> around, we are seeing a shift in methods to try and understand some of the under-the-hood mechanisms that relate to our, our, our attachments to the European Union, our responses to the European Union, that allow us to look at the diversity of the way in which people um, respond across the various nations of the European Union. And I think we're likely to see further um, developments in, in, in those fields. Um, at the moment, we're working with uh, Full Fact, the fact-checking organisation, to try and get some sense through experimental work of what is it that actually makes what's considered to be an accurate statement of, of information perceived to be accurate by the person that it's received by. So looking at how audiences receive things, how they respond to it, um, using things like face emotion coding, where um, you may think that you are giving one answer, but your face may be giving another answer in your response to things. So looking at the ways in which we often control our responses to survey responses, to survey questions, or filter out unpalatable um, attitudes that we, we might have and that we don't necessarily want to reveal and maybe just trying to get a little under the hood of how people respond to and deal with information and, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how, how that develops. Um, full fact I've been working with um, other international fact checkers so that's also allowing a chance to see how um, the same dynamics or different dynamics <coughs> operate across different cultures and whether there's a, a particular tale to be told about European Union attachment or the issues of the European Union. But we know for sure 
that things like these buses, and it was fabulous yesterday seeing the, the Scottish Eurobus photographs in the archives, that they're not new, but they are really important. That 350 million bus, we all know that it, it, it had that effect. And we know from the cognitive psychologists and neuroscientists that one of the mechanisms that takes place is if you get in early with a big number, it's that that sticks in the public psyche and correcting it actually simply reinforces its presence in the, the, their psyche. And that, that puts you in a very, very difficult position to correct things. So I think, yeah, understanding a bit more about how we communicate, how messages can be embedded, how they're processed, how we can more efficiently process what we see as accurate information will be um, really interesting and really interesting in terms of the consequences for the archiving of these stories in the future. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much. And now we move straight away to Paul. Thank you, Bridget. And likewise, thank you very much, and thank you to UACs for, for, uh, for the invitation. It's uh, um, a great uh, pleasure to be, uh, to, to be here, and, and sorry for the slightly delayed start. Some bus issues. Um, uh, I was asked to talk on, on um, the, the research that I'm undertaking and how my work um, has been uh, impacted by, um, by, by Brexit. Um, my work um, has been focused throughout my career really on the EU's external relations uh, with a sort of subfield on uh, migration. Um, I initially started looking at um, the EU's relationship with Japan because I was living in Japan and worked for the Commission um, a bit in, in Tokyo and at the time trying to get, well I, I remember putting in an abstract for a legal conference on EU-Japan and I had an audience of precisely zero which wasn't great as a first ever conference experience I have to say um, <laughs> but did tell me that start putting in abstracts that are not so specific as to be of interest. However now all of a sudden it's become a thing and now I'm getting invitations to speak on work that I was doing kind of 15 plus um, uh, years ago so um, and maybe the lesson there is stick with things even if they don't seem well, seem relevant um, at, at the time. Um, so uh, in a sense, that's uh, one of the consequences of, um, of Brexit is, is things that we might have looked at a while ago that suddenly have uh, contemporary relevance, relevance again as we start to look back at some of the, you know, the core reasons of, of, of you know, what, what being in the European Union or rather being out of it um, actually, um, actually means. Um, in, in, in time, I mean, certainly, you know, the Brexit result to me was, uh, was a shock. Um, it, it wasn't, I suppose, very much a surprise. I only recently moved to, uh, to, to Strathclyde in, in Glasgow um, earlier this year. I was previously, uh, and I'm still living in uh, Sheffield, uh, which is, was a city which voted leave just. Uh, if the city boundaries were slightly different, it would have voted um, remain uh, my, my bit of the city, which, which was until recently Nick Clegg's constituency, um, was very strongly uh, remained. It was very much a divided, um, a divided city. And certainly as you get out into um, the rest of um, South Yorkshire, which was one of the objective uh, one uh, areas for ever, really, because it is very deprived, was very, very strongly leave um, territory. So once you start... Um, you know, hearing what people are saying, especially in local media and so on, and you realise that the debates are very, very different than the ones that were happening um, within, uh, within London, for example. Um, in terms of, of, my, of my research, um, and, and you know, partly because of the, you know, I think for many people the shock is when you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm employed as an academic in, in EU law, 
um, you know, am I still going to have a job in a few years? I mean, this is one of the immediate kind of worries. I think I need to plan for this. Um, and already I've sort of been thinking, and it's always, you know, good to think about the research plans anyway, but, um, and thinking about, well, actually, the migration aspect, whether in, in, in the United still going to remain alive. So I've been sort of lightly working on that um, anyway. Um, I uh, was already then working on the, the sort of uh, nexus between uh, migration and, um, and foreign policy, and I'm particularly interested um, in looking at uh, new modes of governance, uh, which uh, there was a, a huge amount of, of um, scholarly work done in the, in the 90s and, and 2000, usually in fields relating to either economic and finance at the outset, or certainly in, in areas of um, social employment policy. but almost nothing in the externally focused. Now, I always felt there was something there, but um, it, it's one of those sort of on, underlying um, ideas that I wanted to develop, and actually migration, if we shift the focus slightly of, of new modes of governance, um, I think we can see things happening, but in a less um, sort of civil society friendly, uh, nice way perhaps we've seen um, before, but in, in, in sort of a rather um, harder um, knows way, particularly looking at, uh, for example, the, the deal uh, with, uh, with Turkey and can we conceptualise these in ways that we know about with, with new knowledge of governance. So I'll be, I'll be coming back, thanks to Andrew, uh, at the end of um, January as part of a workshop um, where I'm going to be developing that. So in terms of Brexit, for me as an external relations, it, it means paradoxically everything and nothing because as, a, as an external relations scholar, I've been looking you know, from, from the inside out. Uh, but in the future, I'll be looking from the outside in. Um, and that necessarily means that uh, I'm going to be looking more specifically at the, at, at the UK um, uh, case and how the UK relates as, as, a, as an outsider, whilst at the same time it means nothing in the sense that my career now has looked at the EU. And actually looking through my previous publica publications, so, well, in many times, I don't even I don't mention the UK. I've never really paid attention to when you know writing on CFSP, apart from some references, but certainly no more to the UK than to France or to Germany or any of the other um, uh, member states. So that's been suddenly one of the things then, uh, and partly motivated by you know requests for media things or involvement in UK and a change in Europe and so on. I've had, I've had some small project, small projects there, and actually thinking, mm, I'm, I'm not sure how much I. You know, actually know about you know which missions he's been involved with and so on, and so that's also provided me um, with um, a, a period of, of reflection. Partly also because then I, I really want to know, I need to know in order to respond to these questions, um, and I think um, this is reflected I think quite a lot in, in, in UK academia. Partly I think it's because uh, of the nature of the UK as being a large member state with a large number of academics in, 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 in universities and I think the position would probably be different if we were a school. For example, you know, when I talk to colleagues from, from Ireland, which is a good, a good comparator, there people are much more clear of, well, what is the Irish position or, you know, who are the actual personalities um, involved, whereas in the UK, you know, frankly, I wouldn't really have a clue on some of the things and certainly now that I'm starting to look at it. Um, and I think so, that one of the ways that I'm thinking um, or reflecting on how you know, my, my work as an academic has changed or is changing is because of Brexit, is the idea of, well, our expertise, expertise as, a, as a resource. And I was struck by a colleague of mine, uh, a lawyer, uh, not in EU law, um, in, in international law at, at the University of Edinburgh, who uh, from Uruguay, and she said, well, whenever I do research, because I'm from a small country where my time is a national resource, it needs to be useful for 
it, it needs to be useful for the country, it needs to be that way. Whereas I've never really thought in that way because, well, there's enough of us doing things that if there is a need for someone on, you know, UK in, in foreign policy or whatever, there are already people, people doing that. I don't need to think in those terms. Whereas now I'm thinking more and more in those uh, terms, and particularly now that I've moved to Scotland, where, uh, and, and I have to say that my move to, to, to Scotland was, was motivated by the Brexit and vote position in Scotland there. Um, is, is different and certainly the way in which um, I find um, expertise being, being relied on and, and how academics are valued um, is certainly different to uh, in England and certainly in, uh, in the in English um, regions. Um, so I think really um, in, in terms of you know how my work has been changed by it, well in many ways it hasn't changed at all because I'm still looking at the EU and I'm still valid and yet it has given me this, uh, this chance to, um, to, to reflect and so on. And once you start doing that and then looking backwards and looking at the, uh, the position uh, that the UK government uh, now finds itself in, then it actually it's quite useful to draw on the general knowledge of what's happening in, in the EU uh, and I think this is where uh, certainly our role in experts you know, can, can come in. So when the, for example, the UK's um, position paper on foreign uh, um, security defence policy, you read it and it looks like a case for remaining in the EU, but it, because it talks about the importance of you know, EU cooperation, well, yes, okay, and it refers to, well, you know, this has always been regarded as important, and you know, in the UK's strategic reviews of um, you know, 2015 and defence reviews, you know, this was clear, and you look at those documents and go, hang on, no, it's not, it doesn't even mention the EU, it talks about NATO a lot, it doesn't mention the EU um, at all. So there's a sort of Almost now we see um, in the past where, okay, it's always been regarded as important, but nobody actually dares say it. And now it's being said because of what's at stake to lose and because actually you can be and need to be more open about how important that cooperation um, is. So in terms of how, um, how work has been impacted, yes, you've got the material, but also um, I think it's provided uh, an opportunity for many and going beyond um, EU law and EU studies um, you know, to what this actually means. And this is where, of course, we find that the crossover between uh, our research but also our, our teaching. Uh, and we had a, a meeting between all of the, the Scottish uh, law schools to say, well, we have to teach EU law because it's a, it's a core subject, of course. How do we teach the students? Because the law has not changed, but we're selling them short if we say, well, the law's not changed in two years, this subject, you know, is not going to be valid. And so we actually, you know, but it's so developing so much, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we keep track on that? And so we've actually um, agreed to put together an e-book uh, with pointers to uh, blogs and things that have been, uh, been written as, as resources. But there again, you've got, um, the, in a sense, it's an opportunity to tell students, well, you always need to keep updated with the law, and this is an ideal time for development, but at the same time, um, it's, it's one where it's difficult to um, extract out the politics from it, not that we necessarily um, um, should. Um, so certainly for, for me and how uh, my, my work as a wider academic, uh, or in, uh, wider academic uh, work in a sense, has been impacted, have been really reflecting on what it means to be an academic, how you balance that uh, role as being a teacher and being a researcher, but also being involved in the, in, in the debates and trying to keep um, your own personal views let's say at bay, um, sometimes about, um, about, about the whole thing. And I think this is, um, uh, is, is going to be crucial in, in, in going forward and, and, and seeing how um, the UK um, gets out of uh, this, uh, I could say challenge, I could also say mess, couldn't I? Um, in, in terms of resolving uh, it. Um, and certainly as a, as a lawyer, um, what we do find in these debates is, uh, and, and even on the external um, 
question. A lot of this uh, noise is made about uh, trade deals, and I was invited onto a, a BBC local radio station to talk about Theresa May's trip to Japan. And uh, you know, the question was, well, you know, how how good is this deal she's come back with? Essentially, she's come back with a deal. You know, a deal is not the 900 pages that you need there. You've got a promise to look at something in the future. Um, and so, as a lawyer, it's also, um, uh, and this goes. Again, way beyond them, or it's reinforcing well, what this actually is. And the reason why we're experts in something is that we know that these questions are not simple and cannot be uh, uh, resolved with, with simple um, sound bites. Um, so that's really how um, how my work has been impacted in terms of less perhaps on the actual material of it, apart from looking at the UK, but in just reflecting on what it means to be uh, an academic. And I think um, Brexit is. Uh, is, is, is forcing us or is affording us the, the opportunity to reflect on, on what that means uh, and how we position ourselves within not only institutions but also in wider um, society. Thank you. Roberta? Right. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank UASIS um, for organising this and actually inviting me to be here because it's really given me an opportunity to think about the way that we go about studying uh, the EU, the way that I've certainly gone about doing my own work. And what I want to actually talk about today is three parallel strands, which I think Brexit really highlight how they come together. Um, and the first one is in relation to, so all of it is going to focus on the issue of, of gender. I am a feminist scholar. I work um, from within that particular framework, theoretical framework. And I think actually that has been one of the single biggest silences in a lot of the debates about Brexit. Uh, the impact that is gonna have on gender equality policies on the one hand in the UK, uh, but also um, the gendered nature, both of the referendum campaigns, but also of uh, the kind of high-level politics that uh, policymakers are focusing on at the moment. The second uh, relates to pathways for political engagement. So what Laura was also talking about in relations to how do women engage with the issue of Brexit and how, particularly in relation to the referendum, how were women's voices either silenced, sidelined, or actually included uh, within that. And last but not least, and what does that say about EU studies? And I think this actually is quite significant in relation to some of the discussions we had yesterday about the kind of co-constitutive nature of the subject of our study, uh, Brexit, the EU, and the discipline within which we actually all operate. So I'm going to start with a couple of anecdotes, uh, which I think really highlight how these three strands come together. Um, I've actually lost track of the number of times that people have said to me, gender equality principle is enshrined within UK law. So, you know, Brexit will not affect national provisions unless the government does a major power grab in terms of the executive, uh, heaven behold, the uh, UK withdrawal bill. Um, so I, I actually think that's a very short-sighted view of uh, the relationship between national legislation the role of UK governments in negotiating gender equality policies at the European level, and also the gendered impact and nature of the process itself. The other question that I've often been uh, posed or comment, statement, is while the negotiations are really complex, 
we have higher priorities. Uh, I'm not sure who we is. Um, so we need to concentrate on the, national, on the pursuit of national interest, as if national interest is gender neutral, is gender free, and actually does not have a symmetrical impact on different demographic groups within the UK. And third, I was told that actually women are not really that interested. Uh, and here I will actually tell you an anecdote. Um, so I, I have a 13-year-old son who likes to play football, and I often take him to his football matches. And someone, one of the dads uh, taking his son to the football match, he works in finance, uh, out of the blue came and told me, professor of European politics and gender, why women are not interested in politics and why women do not engage in politics. I kind of tried to explain to him that perhaps mansplaining to a professor of gender and politics, why women don't engage in politics, is actually a really good illustration of why. Um, he really wasn't having any of that, and actually suggested that in terms of how the EU works, we should approach Simon, um, because our children go to the same school, so this dad also knows Simon, to actually clarify some matters on institutional structures. And I thought, okay, thank you very much. Um, but I think this is actually an illustration of what was happening also during the referendum. Uh, with a couple of colleagues, we ran a survey about 10 days after the referendum. And interestingly enough, and fairly unsurprisingly, we found that women were much less likely to talk about politics, Brexit, the referendum in public, but much more likely to talk about it in private, so within the domestic setting. Um, and I think that kind of little um, illustration that I just gave you highlights why and why we actually need to talk about gender. The second kind of um, vignette that I want to give you is uh, to do with the BBC. And uh, one of the reasons why I actually got involved in looking at the referendum and the gender nature of Brexit. Uh, a colleague, now she works at Newcastle University, nearly crashed her car as she was listening to Radio 4, and one of the editors said, came on and said, like, oh, we've been trying to find women to come and talk about Brexit, uh, but there are no women experts who can come and talk about the EU. Uh, so that generated a crowdsourced list of uh, female academics, uh, both in the UK and across Europe, who can talk about not just Brexit, but European economics, politics, law, you name it. Um, so, and I think actually most of the women who are here are on that list, um, simply because it is actually an issue and the visibility of women as experts uh, during the referendum campaign uh, was actually fairly marginal or minimal. So I think that actually says something quite significant about the way that we go about studying uh, Brexit and the future of uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU. And uh, I really want to thank uh, both speakers from yesterday because I'm actually going to change the way that I'm going to go about doing a specific project, looking in particular to the role, to the impact that exiting the EU will have on core policies. And specifically, I'm kind of going back to my roots in a way, looking at the 1992 Pregnant Worker Directive. Because actually, we need to look back in order to understand what's going to happen at the national level post-Brexit, and understanding the way that the UK government negotiated and actually uh, hampered the development of gender equality policies 
at the European level. And the Pregnant Worker Directive is a real case in point where the Commission did have to do some really fancy footwork to get around the possibility of both, it's interesting we're talking about Brexit and we're also in Italy, the Italian veto and the British veto uh, in, the 19, in 1990. So actually, what we still have today is a provision based on health and safety legislation. Uh, or a health and safety principle rather than equality principle uh, because of this kind of um, objection by, by both the UK and the Italian government. But the UK government in particular has repeatedly made statements uh, as to the fact that too much regulation, too much red tape actually prevents uh, or hampers competitiveness. And I think this is actually one of the issues that during the referendum, a lot of feminist organisations in the UK did not pick up and campaign on. Interestingly, most feminist organisations, because of their charity status, felt that they could not make statements during the referendum campaign. That was true of the Fawcett Society, the main campaigning organisation in the UK. The only one that actually broke ranks with that was probably NAWO, the National Alliance of Women's Organizations, which actually took a very pro-Remain stand. But that actually meant that this kind of potential gendered impact was not picked up and addressed in any significant way throughout the referendum campaign. The Fawcett Society has since launched a campaign to ask the government to commit to maintain and increase the provisions currently established under EU law and uh, national law. Um, but there has been very little that has come back from that. There's been one uh, parliamentary commission which lasted very, which wasn't particularly um, well funded. There has been one report on the gendered impact of Brexit, but it's really very much sidelined and pigeonholed as part of the gender silo. I think this actually therefore tells us something fairly significant about how we go about studying the EU and the importance of actually the canon, what we understand to be European Union studies, uh, to actually bring in intersectional feminist critical approaches. Because are those kind of those are the voices and the kind of interest groups that are often not represented in the way that both the media, the governments, and mainstream approaches actually seek to promote or understand or um, engage with issues such as the national interest. Um, so actually, what I, I guess the final point that I want to make is that feminist approaches, as an example, and particularly I would actually say intersectional feminism at the moment, create an opportunity for us uh, to actually gain a better, broader, deeper understanding of diversity that constitutes the EU and European Union studies. Uh, and actually provide useful insights about structures of power that underpin both the discipline, but also the, um, the way that, uh, well, the subject of our study itself. So, not just that, so therefore it's not just about understanding what Brexit is going to do in terms of gender equality policies, but also looking at the gender nature of traditionally, of policy areas that are traditionally seen as gender free or gender neutral, gender neutral, such as trade, finance, because both of those have huge impact 
on the economy and what we do know that in the context of a crisis there are asymmetrical gendered impact that actually do affect the different uh, groups within the population. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And let me reiterate the thanks to my co-panelists for the opportunity to be here over these, these days and an opportunity to sort of to pause and to reflect. At the moment, life is being led at 150 miles an hour plus in the UK. You know, as academics, we've never been in such demand. You know, I've, I had the opportunity yesterday to reflect on the period of 20 plus years ago and, and sort of with nostalgia and with a certain amount of, of deep effect to remember those times that as a PhD student I was deep in the bowels of DG, what was DG5 and tracing the history of the adoption of a piece of employment legislation and looking back into the 70s and finding these bits of document that had been hidden in different places. And a wonderful opportunity, very indulgent opportunity to you know, think back on my sort of course through EU studies, where I've been and where I've come to. And, you know, this opportunity to breathe a little, because over those 20-odd years, I'd say for sort of 17 of them, I wasn't really on the end of the phone to the BBC. There wasn't an awful lot of interest in what it is that we were doing. And I think I had one inquiry about, is it true that EU citizens can go into the museum for free? <laughs> Maybe can we? You know, so so the, you know, that was it. There was no interest. And then suddenly this exploded. Um, and it has just been continual. That engagement that we are being drawn in, whether that's media, whether that's public-facing engagement, whether it's responding to the demands of committees across the UK and beyond, but it's it's fairly relentless. Um, and as academics, we're not you know, we need a bit more time for sort of space and reflection around these. Of course, it does come with twenty plus years of background to all of this, and it's not we have that expertise to say it's not that straightforward. So when I've sat before a committee and had the chair say, tell us how to do this painlessly. <laughs> That's not my job. You know, I can tell you why it's so bloody difficult. So, so, so this opportunity to, to think and reflect a little, and it was interesting to hear from Paul talking about how you know, we're refocusing the lens, we're refocusing that gaze, and you're focusing back down in on how things might be working on the ground, whereas I'm finding with my work... I'm sort of looking beyond a bit more, I'm sort of now sort of beyond the EU level in some ways, and sort of taking um, what had become quite a, um, not parochial, but my work had for the past, I say, so go back 20 odd years, a lot of it was, what is the space for difference and diversity in EU law? And challenging that narrative about, you know, we know that it's, a misplaced narrative, but it's one that was is very popular in the UK. That it can be the same homogeneity, uniformity, and that's not the case. There is all this space. And initially, I was doing that on sort of comparing how different member states were dealing with employment law issues, and how even within one piece of employment law, there was space for a lot of difference and diversity within how you engage with that. And then. 15, 16 years ago, I moved to Wales, moved to Cardiff, and Cardiff was undergoing this process of political coming of age. It, 1998, devolution. Devolution in the UK. We have the creation in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland has its, its own history, obviously, here, of new governments. 
new legislative institutions with primary legislative powers, so new players on the pitch. And I sort of started looking at devolution in an EU context and what EU membership meant for devolution and vice versa. And getting a handle on that question of sort of difference and diversity, how does this play out within a state? Within a state where these different parts of the country are you know, getting these new powers, getting devolved powers in areas which are heavily Europeanised, agriculture, fisheries, environment. What are the governance processes behind you know, policy making in those areas? And of course, we can then sort of see well, what happens in other member states. What are the histories that we see in other multi-level systems across the, the EU and, and the comparisons that can be drawn? So I, I did some work in that field, um, particularly things like GM, genetic, genetically modified organisms, where we see differences across the UK. Wales, Scotland are much opposed to these, different views coming from, from the centre. What opportunity structures did EU membership provide, whether that is the formal hard legal structures or softer networks of regional partnership, working together, collaborations within policy processes? So that became my focus. And then we have the referendum being called, or we have this process towards the referendum and, and now beyond. And my work's very much become focused on understanding the significance of withdrawal from the EU for the ongoing survival of the UK's territorial constitution, because it's going to face, and it is facing, very profound constitutional challenges. Because our history of devolution, we've only known it within the context of EU membership. The decision, it, you know, EU membership has been assumed, it's written through the devolution legislation. The legislative powers that the devolved assemblies host, and they're the ones that they hold, it says these are subject to compliance with EU law. They cannot do anything that does not comply with EU law. If they legislate in something that does not comply, it is not law. So their powers are very different from Westminster Parliament powers. And in the run-up to, uh, to the referendum, there were story messages were sent that if we do leave the EU those restrictions will be lifted and so you'll no longer be subject Scotland will no longer be subject to the restrictions in the field of fisheries or agriculture environment you can create your own policies in this area now what's been very clear is the UK government is not going to allow that to happen and so we have now my work now is focusing on two main areas one is around repatriation of powers looking at the return of powers to the UK and where they are going to fall. Now, as the devolution legislation has it at the moment, those powers should, as things are settled at the moment, should come back in these areas of fisheries, agriculture, environment, should come back to the devolves. But we have a withdrawal bill that essentially is saying, well, no, they don't. They're going to be re-centralised. They're coming back and we're going to the UK government will hold them until such a point as we've created a new UK-wide common framework, or we've decided that we don't need a common framework so you can have them back. Understandably, this is not going down terribly well across the devolved uh, parliaments and governments. But one of the things that's going on there, of course, is um, some of the rationale that's coming forward from the government is we need an internal market. Now, up until this point, the EU provisions have played that role, have 
you know, perform an important function for creating an internal market for the UK. And I go back to the, but that doesn't mean that everything has to be the same. There is space, there should be space for difference and diversity. But it's also a political choice. We have to make political choices here. The UK government has just said we need an internal market and anything that disrupts that internal market can't be allowed. Now, we need to know more about this concept of the internal market. We need to question it. We've had 40, 50 years plus experience of understanding the EU internal market and seeing what a nuanced, complex notion it is. That it's not just this absolute notion. We know that there are all those spaces for justifications, but choices that we make about the things that we are going to value and that can stand against things that might disrupt, disrupt and you know, disrupt trade. That there are political choices there. There's also principles pulled in there at an EU level, whether that's subsidiarity, whether it's mainstreaming gender, whether it's mainstreaming respect for the environment. And we don't have any of those constitutional guarantees within the UK system. So looking at those issues, questioning this internal market concept, and in terms of looking beyond, looking to see what happens beyond the, the EU, looking to see what happens in other, other multi-level states, other states with shared governance structures, how do those processes take place in deciding where competence lies and how competence is exercised there? So that's one part. And then the other is very specific to Wales, reflecting my, my place there, is looking at when Brexit does happen, what potential continuing connections could Wales have with the European Union, whether formal or informal, what sorts of continued engagement might we be able to see Wales have. Um, we've been doing some work on power diplomacy and Wales's role in decision, the, the processes there at the moment, so reflecting on the past, its role in the negotiations and then looking beyond. And one of the, one of the things that kept on coming up when we've been talking to people is Quebec. Quebec keeps on getting mentioned. And so you know, we know that there are sort of regions, there are areas that are involved in various sort of soft ways in policy learning and, and policy engagement. And so looking, looking sort of beyond the EU there in terms of what can we learn from how others might engage in the future. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you all for your insights into what it, what it is to be a scholar as your country goes through an extraordinary constitutional process and moment. Uh, and it clearly affects you personally, it affects the subject of your inquiry, the methods that you use, uh, and of course your country is now an extraordinary laboratory. <laughs> it's a laboratory within the boundaries of the United Kingdom in terms of the relationships between the whole and the parts, but it's also an extraordinary laboratory in global terms because uh, the country by a very small majority has decided, in my view, to deglobalize or to rein in interdependence and to try to do it in a way that it gives you maximum control over boundaries and minimum loss in economic terms. And as we see these negotiations proceed, it's becoming clearer and clearer that there is absolutely no way the United Kingdom can escape very serious economic consequences of the road that has been embarked on. I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that all of the options that are on the table, that at best it's CETA plus. And I don't think anyone should plan for anything better. There is nothing available. The EU will not get bespoke agreements that are like the EEA, 
without being in the EA. Or it won't get bespoke agreements on financial services. Uh, there was an extremely important from that a European institution in Canary Wharf, the European Banking Authority yesterday, where it set out very clearly that passporting, in my view, is gone. That's my read of it. But much more importantly, it's requiring the EU to uh, ratchet up the legislation on equivalents. So I think it's, for me, it's, uh, it, it really is the, the object of scholarship. There's also how you do it. But there's also a fundamental issue of, as a citizen of your country, what do you do when, now I know that there are, there are academics who favour to leave and I fully respect anyone's right to vote the way they do, but I would suspect it's a really small minority of people who know the EU voted to leave the EU. I suspect it's an extremely small uh, majority. And you're the people who know in a very deep sense what this system is and how it operates and its contribution. Uh, and it... Uh, it's very difficult, I think, to remain detached. I mean, Paul, you said, you know, I, I try to bring my knowledge to bear while remaining neutral. This is a constitutional moment in your country. I'm not sure. But it's it's also as this process, because it's not over, of course, uh, what is the responsibility or the opportunity structure? for individuals to make a difference at this stage. And I don't, I mean, I don't have any answers, but listening to you, I'm very struck by the fact that it really is a profound constitutional moment in the history of your country. Unfortunately, it also might be a profound constitutional moment in the history of other countries, but that's quite, that's quite a part. <laughs> that's, that's quite another issue. So we'll open to the floor for your contributions, your questions, but I would thank all of our four uh, speakers for giving us uh, a very rich uh, set of insights uh, into Brexit and what it is to be a scholar of the European Union in the United Kingdom at the moment. So we're open for questions. Pierce. Just very quickly picking up on, on the point that the producer just made about, uh, about the complexity of the current situation. It does strike me that one of the things that sort of I inevitably look at this as a historian because I've done quite a lot of work about Britain's approach to the community. Inevitably, that colours my perspective on how to look at its disentanglement from the same. And it does strike me that one of the things that is going to be very, very difficult, or is already becoming very, very difficult about Brexit, is the extent to which it's it involves explaining to a degree that was never previously necessary the realities and the extent of interdependence. Because in a sense, the, the decision to go in was a decision taken by a small elite who were conscious of that interdependence, and rightly or wrongly, they decided not actually to go very far in explaining that reality as they saw it to the wider population. Now, I think you can have a debate about whether that was a conscious decision not to explain or whether it was a realisation that most people weren't interested in. I think the answer involves a bit of both. Um, but in a way, because they were going with the grain, as it were, of, 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 of developments, they could get away with that. Because we're now arguably running against the grain, I think the option of not explaining 
is is much less available to us. We're going to have to explain to people why all of these fields, whether they be gender relations or devolution or whatever, whatever, why why we cannot continue as we did before. And we're going to have to make some very serious judgments. And we're not signing up for a. Uh, an acquis communautaire which has already been worked out and which already exists, so in a sense we're going to have to come up with a bespoke set of solutions to all of our various <coughs> And so we're going to have to be a lot more explicit, and I think that does give a particular role to academics because we do have some inkling of complexity, and we're one of those one of those voices that will need to be heard, despite the fact that the country keep on still seem to have a sort of slight phobia to experts. But uh, that will have to change because we're going to have to start explaining the reality. Can I just add to that and ask all of you, what is your experience in, in engaging with the media on this subject? Because again, I was very struck as a, at simply as an outsider watching the, the, the media content, that in a lot of cases it was quite poor in terms of the grasp of the EU. And I'm also struck by the fact that Nigel Farage gets so much airtime in the, in, in the UK, and I don't know what his standing is that allows him to be almost the first point of call. So you need the other side, so you call Farage. So, but I would be very interested in hearing your experiences with the media on this. So who wants to? <laughs> uh, Joe, I mean, you, you get the occasional call on, on, on something, but often it wouldn't be quite related to, to you know, to what you actually knew about. So, um, yeah, this is now sort of ratcheted up quite, quite a bit. And I think you do get, even without media training, you do get used to being able to say, well, sort of like that, and keep it sort of general. But, I mean, yes, I mean, it, a, a lot of it is even, and I think this also, uh, media reflects also society at large because we focus quite a lot on why leave voters as they did and they don't understand the EU or they have this view of it but actually even on, on Remain side I mean, you know, talking to for example students and, and young people who are very much pro-Remain but then you ask them why and they, they're not really sure why and I, and I suspect a lot of people look at who's arguing for leave, the Farages and so on and go, oh, I don't tell you that uh, you know, that can't be right, so I'll, I'll be remain. But actually, and, and beyond getting, well, it's good to be part of a, a club and be international, be in, which is a very, you know, it's a very general thing rather than specifically on the, on, on the EU. I think we don't really understand the, the reasons for which we remain as much as uh, also on, on leave. But on the media, I mean, as, as I said before, often, you know, people in the media and you know, on, on local radio station or even national, you know, they have to, to turn their attention to. You know, specific um, issue very quickly, and so we expect them to be as an expert, and and you know they're looking for the sort of sound bite, and it's very much sort of right. Well, you know, what's what's this deal about, and what needs to be done with it, this quick thing, and trying to, to get across very quickly what the um, you know what the um, you know the complexity um, of it is is you know is, is the key, but also trying to, to do that in, in you know in, in within a couple of minutes uh, it's different and also and especially when often when it's international media or outside that can be a challenge as well because inevitably then the national sort of point com comes in and, and I did a, a, a breakfast a breakfast morning um, if you're on Irish radio on news talk um, radio who asked me to talk about one thing but then the presenter got understood the brief slightly differently and started asking how uh, about sort of referendum generally and of course the Irish experience which of course well 
don't actually have that many, so I was, it's, I'm actually not the best person to talk to on, on, on that, and it was very much, and I think sometimes you just have confidence to say, even if you're, you know, live in the media, well, actually, I don't know about that, and actually, it's best to ask uh, someone else. So generally, it's, it's quite... Yeah, it, it, my, 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 my experience has been, has been um, a positive one, and it's been, you know, like it's, this is the golden opportunity to do things, even though sometimes, you know, to try and just get across, well, actually, there's no good solution um, to this. But always being in, in, in mind that, you know, academics and universities were just accused of being in the EU's pocket all the time, and of course, especially if you have a John Monet, you know, attachment <laughs> to it, then it's the, um, you know, this isn't restricted across the UK, but it's particularly um, um, uh, acute. Can I? Yes, please, whoever. Yeah. No, um, and then we go back. Yeah. Uh, Wales has a, a, a national broadcaster as well, so I, I do quite a lot of sort of Welsh specific stuff and um, a number of sort of political programmes. The more sort of lengthy discussion, half an hour, an hour sessions, where there might be sort of just a couple of people and, and a, you know, a lengthy piece on. Welsh people that are in the south of Spain or something like that. So an opportunity for more of a discussion to take place, that's great. Inevitably, you know, then there's the shorter bits where you've got 30 seconds to say, it's all very complicated. It's <laughs> all very complicated. What I have found, though, is even in the run-up to the referendum, still, you know, that wasn't when the calls were coming. It was afterwards. It has been afterwards. It's now trying to make sense of it all, rather than understanding any before then. There's that. There's also an, uh, just another thing to reflect on, and it, obviously it's not only women with caring responsibilities, but just a reflection on women in, in the media. Um, I, during this time as well, I had a period of maternity leave, and one of my, my clear statements was, yes, I will do some media, but I will only go into the studio in Cardiff, because I have a small baby, and I'm not, I'm not going anywhere else. And I, I sort of kept, tried to keep to that. But I still get a phone call at sort of eight o'clock at night to say, can you be in Manchester tomorrow morning for breakfast television? <coughs> and, and you know there will, still, there will be some people who will do that because they want the profile. And whoever that is, and whoever you know, then gets on speed dial and gets there. But there are things about you know, people's lives and, and you know, in terms of who's there, who's always there, well, who makes themselves available for these sure. things there as well, who wants that platform. Um, but it... it there is something about how the media is not geared up to reflect people's lives. Um, okay. okay, Laura, and then we'll go back to the audience. Yeah, um, on the two parts, so in Pierre's questions about um, the public engagement and the need to, to, to keep engaging, one of the things that fascinated us most was we followed the, the, this Twitter conversation through from the, year, the announcement of the referendum right through the entire year. And for the vast majority of the year, it was 0.06% of the Twitter conversation was on Brexit in English language. So next to nothing. You hit the months of May and June, and it comes up to um, a, a, a reasonable uh, amount of the conversation. You hit the day after the referendum, and it went off the scale and broke our servers. And it has never, ever come back down to its original no, it level. It can't. It can't. <laughs> and it reached, where it, if you just hit blank numbers, that's not really much use. It's like 0.5% of the Twitter conversation sounds like nothing. But people were talking about it more than they were talking about Taylor Swift's later break, latest breakup, more than they were talking about the European Cup. It was really a Twitter event, and it has stayed up there. And it gives you just a, 
just one of the gauges of how much people are agitated and it's agitated people that tweet that's that's where they get them and especially in politics men yeah. agitated men that tweet um, and get, get retweeted interestingly um, but but I, I think that is really really real and it is a, it's just a constant reminder of how much people are concerned and of course the most googled thing apparently was what is um, the what is Brexit? So I mean that that again tells you what you know what you were talking about, what exactly what fits with your perception that people didn't know what they were they were voting for. Closely so. followed by how do I get an Irish passport? <laughs> and I think I'm oh, you're getting Scotland. lots of those as well. <laughs> I think I'm only Scotland, no Irish connections. I'm much disgruntled. So and in terms of the media, I thought that was really interesting. And obviously, as a Scot, we were in a peculiar situation of having hurtled out of one referendum into another. And of course, the EU was a huge part of that conversation in the Scottish independence debate. So in fact, there were, I think there was a slightly different dynamic. There was yes. a slightly different level of knowledge about the EU sure. generally, which I think probably was reflected mm-hmm. in the ultimate um, results. Um, but it also was interesting in terms of the questions and, and the media uh, environment. Um, but the other thing I did think, and it reflects on our role as academics and partly what Paul touched on, there was an, always an enormous pressure to comment on things you were absolutely not expert on. And the concept that EU anywhere in your title would mean that you would be able to comment on the German elections. And and I think that was important. And I do think within the academy, it is partly our responsibility to say that we can't... The public were really concerned about experts. And the fraudulent nature of what they saw as expertise. And I think it is really, really a strong responsibility for us not to hide behind our title of professor and then comment on something that's just a sure. personal opinion. Absolutely. And I think that one really does matter in, in, in yeah. that context. Um, and, and yeah, I think that, that left us in this really odd position of are we commentators? Yeah. Are we academics? Are we activists? Where sure. do we get to do it? And for those of us on the UK and EU programme, yeah. that's even harder because it was contingent. Our funding was contingent on being absolutely neutral. Yeah. And that was really, really challenging. So there's this part of you that's wanting to say, well, you know, I think this is an area where my expertise could matter and I could change the world. How do I do that? Can I do it best through neutrality? Or and some, you know, we know chose to no longer be funded under these accounts, but it's our main UK funder. That's a really challenging position. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's really interesting to reflect on what all this means for us and our being true to yourself, being true to your discipline and, and your practice. Roberto, and then we yeah, go back. Just um, because actually one of the things that we haven't talked about uh, is the position of non-British UK, sorry, EU nationals, both as scholars of EU politics, but a scientific community. And I, I think it's obviously thrown quite a lot of um, uncertainty about uh, the position of, uh, of a lot of scholars. And unsurprisingly, there are a lot of EU scholars who are EU nationals, not British, working in the UK. And I think actually um, there's there's always a question, I think, when you, like myself, present and you know that you don't necessarily have a British accent when you're speaking through the media and stuff, how much is it, how much do people see you as legitimate, as a commentator, how much can you be in impartial? Um, because... Oh, you obviously have a personal vested interest in the outcomes, 
Um, and that is something that we've not really thought about. Uh, and, and also about the impact this is going to have on the scholarship in the UK. As people are, are making, a lot of people are making um, preparations possibly to leave UK academia. Uh, and the impact of the brain drain that that will, that will have. Uh, not to say least of the fact that a fair number of academics, EU academics, who have applied for permanent residency have been turned down uh, with very aggressive letters from the Home Office basically saying make preparations to leave the country within, I think it's about a month, uh, which obviously it's, uh, it's illegal. Um, but nevertheless, it really creates a hostile environment, which is the intention. Um, one of our colleagues has had his permanent residency uh, application denied. So most institutions are very geared up to this now. It's taken them a little bit of time, but most institutions have lawyers now on their books to actually facilitate the application process. But it does leave people to think about whether or not they want to remain within the UK HE system, uh, particularly as there is substantial uncertainty over access to European Research Council funding, Horizon 2020 and so on. And the uh, Commission statement on the, Horizon on the latest Horizon 2020 call is fairly significant, basically saying we cannot guarantee that if British, well, if PIs based at UK institutions get funding now if we can see it through to the end of the project. That, that will have a significant impact on what we do and uh, the future of HEI in the UK. Thank you. So back to the, back to the audience who would like to, please. So I'm, the, I'm an outsider, you know, the, the U.S. perspective looking in. But I wanted to kind of, I think it's very, it's very, um, it's very easy to kind of think about what's, is it going to be CETA plus? Is it going to be, what's the outcome of this? And really we can't know any of that because it's in the future. Um, but one of the things that as, as an outsider that I have been struck by is the, what I think of is that the government has no plan and that it is flailing. And so then my question is, well, what does that teach us about politics <laughs> more generally and so I would be interested in some of the lessons that you think we've already seen for the role of parties of institutions I and mean, one of the ones I most uh, bowled over by is how patient markets have been with this process you know like yes the pound is you know falling and but but we have been taught you know through political economy that any amount of risk will you know, be priced by markets, and they'll be so sensitive to every moment, at least in my perspective, they've been quite either patient or ignorant, or you know, they're, they're just waiting something. But whatever it is, you know, it's like the, the decision about the passporting kind of uh, future. You would think that there would be you know, a huge market crash in response to that, but instead there's kind of like, hmm, okay, we're gonna see what's gonna happen. So I, I think there are a bunch of these lessons we can already uh, start to tease out, and um, so I'd like to understand your thoughts. Good question. So, who wants to? I can take that again. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, and, and certainly relating to expertise, I mean, a lot of the, the Remain campaign was, was you know, was, was characterised pretty early on in the campaign as, as Project Fear, you know, this would happen. I mean, I, I never really bought into that because, you know, Remain was arguing for the status quo. Um, 
which means either you say, well, we've got to stay in because it's great, but that doesn't mean a lot to people who look at their lives and go, well, actually, things aren't great. So particularly in, you know, in, the, in the lead voting areas across the North and Midlands who feel really quite you know, forgotten uh, by things. Um, and of course, bearing in mind in the context of you know, the referendum was unusual because the UK as a whole uh, has only ever had three national um, referendums, obviously more in, in Scotland and Ireland and so on. Um, and so we're, we're unused to this, this, this process and finding yourself arguing on the same line, you know, and finding a coalition of, of uh, right, left, <coughs> and so on, and, and you know, these strange sort of alliances going on. Um, and then now, of course, there's this, oh, well, all these dire, you know, predictions. And even, you know, one of the ministers, Liz, Liz Truss, who's, who's number two at the Treasury, said the other day, well, I voted Remain, but now I vote Leave, because, you know, there are all these dire predictions, but, quote, since we have left, it's been more positive. Uh, hang on, what? You're number two at the Treasury. You're yes. criticising your own department's predictions, even if it was under a previous minister, but nevertheless, it's the same people working there. And the, since we have left, you know, it's, it's a huge alarm bell. I mean, it's not, and, and it's, you don't think, oh, you just misspoke, and since we voted to leave, which, okay, that, that point is valid then, but no, since we have left. And you just kind of think, will you stop doing the politics, and you please just look at the, you know, reality of it, and stop thinking about your own re-election in the next, you know, election, which is the real... Which is the real um, issue. So there now seems to be a lot of myth making about what was said, and that ex, you know, expert built this all up. But yeah, we, you know, if, if we've got anyone to thank, it might be the Bank of England for being sort of, you know, you know, careful and putting the, you know, the things out. But also these, you know, decisions being delayed, and we still don't know what's 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 going to happen. So then you're in a sort of backtrack saying, well, it wasn't necessarily untrue, but. You know, and actually, well, you know, let's focus again on what Lee was saying. Let's look at the bus again and, and all of these, you know, predictions. And uh, and I think that's where, you know, one of the problems has been, that we're now kind of looking, the discourse has sort of moved back, look back to what was said. And, yeah, but it was really interesting yesterday, you know, looking at the, you know, the, the anti-EU leaflets from the early 70s, where, you know, it was very clear that they were saying, you know, we could vote, otherwise it's political union. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, you know, well, this was never on the plan. Well, clearly people pro and against it were saying, that it was much more than you know the common market time. That was really fascinating. Yeah, I've got a few things that I think are lessons. Um, one is referenda a really, really poor tool of internal party <laughs> management. Um, the second one is don't ignore the little bits of the jigsaw. I mean, things that are coming up just now, like the question about Scottish consent, are, are not unimportant. You set up systems with systems within them, they might come back and bite you. Another one, Jeremy Richardson wrote a really good blog um, recently reflecting on his history of looking at the European Union and its governance and at pressure group relationships and government civil service relationships and how much the, consequence, the consequences that we're seeing now actually reflect the shifting relationship between ministers and their civil servants and the depletion of the expert civil service um, and how that's got us into a position that we're in. I also think we're really finding things that matter. Our legitimacy matters. Um, perceptions matter as much as any of what we might see as reality. So we can spend our whole time correcting facts, correcting realities, but if people don't have that perception, if their perception is that legitimacy is not there, that they need to take back control, that is a really dominant. So that message and communications, those visceral, emotional identities really, really do matter in this process. Anyone else? Yeah, I just, yeah, just one thing to add is that I think the biggest 
lesson that we learn is to do with campaigns and it's not just to do with the Brexit campaign. It's uh, very similar patterns um, during the American presidential campaigns and in terms of the messaging and how it, uh, if you allow one side of the campaign, particularly if it is perceived as a binary uh, choice uh, to dominate the early days, it becomes very, very difficult to actually claw anything back. The fact that even the Remain campaign adopted the concept of Brexit legitimized the idea and actually produce this kind of discourse that Brexit is a possibility. And also it's, I mean, I don't work on political communication, but uh, Brexit is an active word. Uh, remain is very static. And it's much more likely to motivate people to vote and to engage with an active kind of term, such as, such as Brexit. And actually, in a way, I think us as academics going forward, we need to really think about how we refer to it. Um, Increasingly, when I write, I try to think about it as and refer to it as the withdrawal from the European Union. Because if you think about it as withdrawal, it really sets out the scope and the magnitude of the process that is taking place. Brexit is like, well, you know, it's like, we've left. And again, the number of times I've had people say to me, but we have left the EU, so why are you still talking about it? You know, but perhaps the secret to Brexit is to say, yes, we have left the EU and leave the status quo, you know, as I said <laughs> before. No, but it, it is about perception. Um, and if even ministers, you know, now are referring to it as like, yeah, we have left the European Union, so, well, you, we haven't, uh, you know, and actually that has, that has a significant impact. But, you know, we know that, but the general public doesn't. Can I add a final lesson, and that is the choice of exit over voice. Because when a country decides to exit rather than exercise voice, it needs to think very carefully what exit means. And the UK, if you look at the tradition of the UK in the EU, it was always exceptional in that the opt-out and whatever. But of course it was very powerful in its search for opt-outs because it was a member state. And in order to allow the system progress, they would give the British the opt-out on JHJ or whatever. But once you opt for exit over voice, your bargaining power switches completely. You're the demander and the system goes ahead. And I think that the internalization of what it means to be a third country hasn't even started in Her Majesty's government. Not even started. The fact that May in Florence spoke of the EU and the United Kingdom hand in hand. Hand in hand is an equal relationship. This is not an equal relationship. It's profoundly asymmetrical. And that for me is the, there was, and, and again, and this is anecdotal, but very powerful. Why did Martin Selmayr leave the famous dinner in Chequers and literally give a verbatim account to the, to, to the Frankfurt Allgemeine. Because the EU negotiators around the table that night were profoundly shocked at what they heard on the other side. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom felt that this was, we're opting out of the EU and now we're going to opt back into whatever we have on the table. And that miscalculation has cost, and I think it's still there. Because I, I think if you talk to the negotiators on the EU side, CETA plus is where it is. And there's no, you know, there's no bespoke across a whole range of issues, despite the good reasons for bespoke. But 
The lesson is if you're choosing exit over voice, you better know what you're doing. And that, I think, it's the British elite is, has been extraordinarily careless in this whole exercise. But anyway, that's my, that's my lesson from all of this. So, Andrew, I think you wanted to. Yeah, uh, hello everybody. My name is Andrew Geddes. I'm here in the Robert Schumann Centre. I'm the director of the Migration Policy Centre here. So, thanks for this conference for us to dip in for this morning. And it's just a, a reflection, really, because we, we do a lot of work on attitudes to immigration. And of course, that was quite an important issue in the UK. And, so it is. and in the reflection we just heard, there's been a lot of, about emotion, agitation, facts, truth. Experts, expert opinion. Uh, we did some work with it. So we know the two key drivers of Brexit were anti migration, nativism, that, that kind of sentiment, followed by distrust of experts. One more distal, more profound, one much more proximal, I think, into distrust of experts, more into the campaign. But two very powerful factors. And just what people have been saying here, maybe think about this relationship between kind of facts, truth, and emotion. Is our, our research on public attitudes to migration and working with Ipsos has shown this, what, what, what's called, I suppose maybe Laura's familiar with this in social psychology, emotional enumeracy, where people's perception of facts is very powerfully influenced by their individual values. Uh, and it makes, in, in, in the area of migration, this is, it makes it very difficult then to think about how you develop fact-based appeals to people. Uh, if their interpretation of those facts is very powerful <coughs> by the values that were formed at a very early age in their life uh, and are very resistant to change, very stubborn. And so it's really just maybe a, a reflection from the work we're doing here in Schumann Centre for the panellists. This relationship between facts, truth, emotion, post-truth politics, post-fact politics, blatant lying, obviously, uh, and within the campaign, but also then perhaps some of the things you've been talking about, where appeals to fact may not work very well with people whose fundamental motivation is this kind of agitation, it's emotion. Uh, and that's obviously something that would be of interest to me as a, a scholar of immigration, and I guess also to people who are interested in European integration, people are driven quite powerfully by emotional responses to this concern and are impervious to facts. So I'd be obviously Anyone else wants to come home and then we? Thank you. Um, my question is um, related to what Bridget just said about uh, exit and voice. Uh, one of the intriguing elements of the Catalan story is that they suddenly woke up um, almost on the brink of independence, uh, realizing legal factors such as there would need to be unanimity uh, to reapply for EU membership and, and, and other uh, terrifying uh, elements. So um, I would like to benefit um, of the strong Scottish presence on the panel. And uh, there has been talk about the Europe of regions for many years, usually in a rather abstract and philosophical or cultural manner. Um, but there has also been very strong lobbying by the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government vis-à-vis um, -vis the European Union. Um, sometimes one almost got the impression that the Scottish Government would like to establish a sort of special relationship with the European Union. And so I was just wondering, um, has there ever been a roadmap or a concrete uh, thinking about how it would theoretically be possible for Scotland to 
uh, become independent and then immediately uh, remain within the European Union? Has this been played through, or uh, <coughs> would they also have been in a situation a bit like the Catalan government right now? Thank, Thank you. you. So please, who wants to? I mean, just the very quick answer to that, yes, is that's been played through extensively in almost every variation of what we could see during the Scottish referendum, but also came out and said, you know, you'd be at the bottom of the letter, you'd have to reapply. Um, but lots and lots of experts said they could come in through different routes. And yeah, that, that has, has been, there's massive documentation on, um, Joe could be able to say probably more. Yeah, to, to pick up on the, the situation in Wales, you know, each part of the UK has its own sort of specific devolution story and history. And Wales is in a um, a strange position in that there was an assumption it was essentially Europhile, it was left leaning. We know that it had benefited. It is a net beneficiary of EU funding. We've had some focus groups post referendum where we've gone to. Colleagues of mine have gone to sort of valleys communities, sort of left behind communities that strongly voted leave dis despite extensive EU investment in those areas. And the message back is they simply don't believe that. It's not that it's been misspent, it's that they don't believe that Wales has been a beneficiary, that, you know, that Wales must have paid more in than it's received out. So again, it's just refusal to accept a fact, you know, it doesn't fit with, with the view. But with Wales' situation, we have a political elite that is strongly pro-European and in the end an electorate that the majority voted to leave. The, the pro-EU sort of government there in Wales is also pro-UK Union as well. So it's not got the same sort of independence background that you see in the SNP. So Wales is trying to sort of maintain connections with both unions in some ways and sort of find a route through that. And it's tried again, you know, some of those permutations, but recognises that there are very real ones. We've heard about, you know, Scotland proposed, there was a suggestion that it could remain within EEA on its own. Um, and we know that Wales isn't really thinking in those terms, the preference is the whole UK stays in the EEA, or maintains a connection, maintains, you know, membership of the single market in some way. Um, so we have sort of different devolution stories sort of playing out in different contexts um, and we don't know where it's going to end up you know traditionally Wales hasn't had that same independence drive Plaid Cymru which is the sort of the equivalent of the SNP hasn't had the same you know, effect and impetus politically domestically we've seen the rise of UKIP you know, we had of the 60 AMs the assembly members of the 2015 election we had seven UKIP AMs returned so there was you know since then the nature of it, you know, it's not a party, it hasn't got a coherent position beyond, we, we, we've sort of seen those numbers drift away, that there is no longer 7AMs, they're still there, but they've sort of, they have become part of other parties, they have left the party, they're not, they don't have the discipline to, to stay together, so that's sort of what, what fills the gap that UKIP felt, you know, that filled for that time. Um, but it might be that this is, this is going to see an impetus towards a sort of a growth in an independence movement in Wales, we just... We don't know where this is leading, but it is those sort of big, you know, potentially huge constitutional issues that might flow from this this decision that just haven't been played out and thought through. I only just wanted to respond quickly on the face emotion, the um, immigration issue, and the emotion issues, and and I don't have any answer to you, but I think we 
find very, very similar complementary results and it's not going to be the results that the fact checkers really like because ultimately the story is very much that people are immune to interpretations yeah. that they don't like, that they ignore the interpretations that they don't like. One of the things that I think may come out, and we're still looking at the results on this, that will be interesting, is looking at face emotion coding on different forms of information about immigration and whether some kinds of communication sources um, have a stronger impact on others. So I think we can look around the edges at how these information sources can be um, shifted and provoke less visceral um, emotions and cue less um, sometimes unpalatable um, responses, but yeah, I think it's complementary. <laughs> um, and to add to that, actually, well, we looked at uh, the proximity on some of the campaign material. And uh, what I found really interesting is that often, particularly on the Leave campaign, issues to do with equality did not appear by and large on their own, but often appeared in relations to immigration. And it always has a negative connotation, so it's a relations to immigration, safety and equality. So the assumption being that immigration is detrimental to women's equality, uh, assuming that it is British women, white women, and also the safety uh, of white women. So there was actually quite a lot of proximity in the way that the campaigns actually framed the messaging, uh, which feeds into a wider body of literature. Yeah, I mean, on the, I mean, one of the things, again, going back to the media and the general kind of thinking about uh, the way the campaigns work, I mean, it seems like a lot of our time as well was spent saying, okay, that's, that's a valid point to raise, you know, it's actually nothing to do with the EU, and this is not something that's going to get resolved by a referendum. So, again, another anecdote, I was on um, the breakfast show on um, BBC Radio Sheffield, and I was following Pia, uh, the Labour here, um, Lord Ahmed of, of Rotherham, who said, well, I really regret voting leave um, because I, I voted leave because I wanted to start a debate within the Asian community about what it means to be British uh, as in terms of our identity. And I mean, it was a good job at the radio, not the TV, because I was looking at the presenter just going, how, and how do you respond to that by going, well, okay, um, yes, lots of people voted on things particularly about immigration, where he got from, from, from another side. And it just showed, yeah, this, this you know, binary question, but actually it's so multifaceted, and you spent so much time going, okay, you're anti-immigrate, or you, you don't want more immigration from the UK, but it's not the EU that forces the UK to take people in from X, Y, and Z. And that's the problem with still falling up on this immigration. You will never satisfy people who want this, because it, you know, it won't be done through, through, through this, because it was already in the hands of the UK and so on to do. So this trying to, to get to, the, you know, to the, the truth or the facts you know, in and swim through this, and again, people just didn't believe it. You, know, you say it and, it, and it's like, no, 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 I won't accept it. It's because of the EU that all these people are here, and the Barrett poster, and the reason he gets so much airtime is, frankly, I think he's just a good media person. I think that's why, um, and uh, it, you know, and that was the, that was the, the real sort of uh, problem on on the, on on the Scotland point. I mean, I'm you know recently uh, um, arrived, and, and I wasn't living there during the, the referendum, but I have talked to the Scottish referendum. But having talked to people, um, there there is. I mean, I've spoken to people who voted yes, who voted no, who would still do so, or would have um, changed their their view. Of course, EU citizens could vote as well. And, I mean, I've certainly spoken to ones who, you know, last time, because they were worried about their EU citizenship, voted no, but the same logic will now lead you to vote for independence in their cases. But the, the overwhelming feeling that I get from people within university and outside university circles is um, a lack of appetite to go through it again. I think it was, uh, even in England looking there, we didn't get the sense of just how painful it was for within families, within friendships, 
um, and the strain that was that was put on there, possibly more so than I mean certainly in the academic environment where you, you're hard pushed to find someone who would vote or even admit voting leave you can actually put debates on for the students often because you didn't have someone arguing you'd have to assume a position of, of, of <coughs> rather than actually have, have people there with with, with the Scottish point yeah, the, the feeling I get is oh you know two referenda all the general elections and Scottish elections and so on you know it, it, it's, it's not the time and it's also of course bound up with the position of a particular party which again was was, was slightly different to the, to the EU one. So that, that's my sense of having been there for a, for a few months and, and, and what it's about, that it's still, it's still, quite, um, it, it's still quite raw, uh, in, in, even in Scotland, but sitting in Glasgow. Well, uh, thank you all. We've come to the end of this session, a very rich session. Uh, and I find that it's, you know, it's very interesting that interesting and discussions of and co the conversations on the withdrawal of the United Kingdom has heightened after the event rather than before the decision was taken. And if you want to take historical analogies, I have frequently reminded all my UK colleagues that there was a very powerful and very conflictual question in, our, in British political life through the 19th century, well into the 20th century. It was called the Irish question. <laughs> this question is going to be on the political agenda of the United Kingdom in much the same way. And I think it'll, you know, depending on what happens, it could outlive us all, so it'll be the next generation as well. But thank you very much for a very rich set of insights. For more UAC's podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast and don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.